Hello, Duncan Green here with your weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. And I have to say I'm suffering. At the start of the pandemic, it seemed like, you know, you have more time to read, um, you have fewer emails. And now Zoom and Teams and Skype has seemed to have expanded into the space. And, and this week seems to have been full of back-to-back calls where you're having to put out that extra emotional energy because you're just looking at someone in 2D rather than 3D. And by the end of the day, you're completely drained and just the Zoom fatigue is setting in big time. But we're nearly at the weekend. So cling to that. And we're nearly at Christmas, although I'm not sure whether that's a particularly good thing. And above all, vaccines, 2021, rosy horizons compared to this year. Let's crack on. Um, so one of the, the fun things I've been doing this, this last few months has been organising a series of lectures, which we do every year at the LSE, which we call Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice. Normally, we have to persuade you know, top lecturers to come down to the LSE to give a lecture in person, and then we take them out for a dinner, and that's supposed to be good enough. Um, the good thing about the lockdown is we've gone fully online, which means we've had a, an amazing talent pool, people sitting in their rooms around the world, giving us fantastic lectures. And we've also gone uh, open access so people can watch them on YouTube. So suddenly the lecture series has got bigger and better, in my view. Um, and last week uh, we had Claire Short. Now, for those who don't know, Claire Short was the first Secretary of State of the British Development Ministry, DFID, which has just been closed down and merged with the Foreign Office. And she was a force of nature as a minister, and she still is. And she gave an amazing, uh, hard-hitting lecture on the demise of DFID. So a couple of quotes um, on the recent decision to cut the UK aid budget by £4 billion a year. It's pure cruelty and meanness. On Boris Johnson's remarks on UK aid, Civil servants are usually pretty good at getting ministers not to make statements to Parliament that show complete ignorance, but clearly not here. Um, and on fixing the UK aid budget at 0.7% of gross national income, I'm not wedded to 0.7. It caused massive hostility among other departments at a time of cuts and led to a focus on quantity, not quality. But this is not the time for cuts. By this, she means... COVID, global recession, poverty rising. And on the wider impact of, of what's been going on in the UK aid system, the defeat of DFID will send a ripple of weakness across the international development system. And her slides were great. And, and her concluding slide was, my conclusion is a sad one. I believe the evidence is clear that the merger was driven by departmental feuding and the cut in the aid budget by right-wing prejudice. Sir John Vereker, former Permanent Secretary of DFID, says that the tension has existed over the years and is between a development ministry focused on bringing about fundamental long-term change and a foreign office institutionally wedded to the short term and the status quo. The quality of UK development efforts will inevitably deteriorate and commercial interests will be reinstated. Respect for UK international cooperation will decline further. And I... It got lots of play on social media. I didn't see anybody disagreeing with that. So a fairly gloomy picture from Claire Short, um, from someone who really does know. Second post of the week was um, another really good report from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the States. They've got a kind of civil society 
project which has been looking at the impact of COVID. And this latest report is called Coronavirus as a Catalyst for Global Civil Society. And the questions they asked were, how far has the pandemic galvanised new forms of civic activism? How far has it led governments to tighten control over civil society actors? What do the new forms of civic active activism look like? Do they portend a different kind of global civil society? And what are the political implications of all this? So, and they've, yeah, they've done a big survey of civil society leaders around the world. Um, and they found three levels of new coronavirus-related civic activism. First, the obvious one. The crisis has prompted CSOs to step into emergency relief roles. CSOs that before were doing advocacy and campaigns, suddenly they're just having to try and keep people fed and you know, alive or do public health education and this kind of thing. At a second level, a more confrontational form of civic activism has gained force as CSOs have increased their role as watchdogs over state authorities. So there have been power grabs, there have been money grabs, yeah, under the guise of, of um, sourcing PPE in the UK as well as lots of other places. And there's a lot of work on civic activism trying to keep an, yeah, a check on some of those abuses. And then at a third level, which is more subtle and maybe more long term and perhaps more important in the long term, the crisis has galvanised global civil society into pushing harder for far reaching radical change to social, economic and political models. So this is the idea of COVID as a critical juncture, which acts as a tipping point into big new paradigm shifts. So nice, thoughtful survey. No, no massive aha moments, but just a good, I thought, solid survey. Now, the... CEO of Save the Children, Kevin Watkins, is um, extraordinary in many ways, but one of them is that he finds time to write, even though he's running uh, in charge of a large, uh, a very large international NGO. And he got in touch last week to say, look, I've just read this book. Uh, can I review it? So I said, sure, because he writes really beautifully. Um, so here's an example. <clears throat> Have you ever wondered what links Bono and Bill Gates to Moses, Socrates, Basil the Great, a 4th century AD bishop in Asia Minor, and the Gilded Age industrialist Andrew Carnegie. Me neither. But Paul Vallely's magisterial book, Philanthropy, provides the answer. Tracing the ties that bind contemporary philanthropists to the ancient world, the book raises questions that go to the heart of debates on international development, charitable giving and social justice. And the sort of he sort of summarizes the book, and uh, yeah, I urge you to read the review. The book's eight hundred pages, so up to you if you've got time to read the whole book. But the the crunch, I think, in in Kevin's review is that um, you got to this. The, the, there was a sort of gilded age philanthropy in the late nineteenth century. Andrew Carnegie, um, Rockefeller, people like that. And Vallely sees that gilded age philanthropy as a profound rupture. Whereas earlier ideas on philanthropic giving were based on the idea of a bond between those who give and those who receive, Carnegie and others prescribed solutions based on their business instincts, whims and priorities of rich individuals. So what Kevin sees is that that rupture marks the start of the more technocratic approach to uh, philanthropy, epitomised by people like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, philanthrocapitalism, which see benevolence in terms of an investment targeted at a specific problem to which it can bring a specific solution. So basically, philanthropy has lost that connection to the receiver 
and replaced it with a search for technical solutions to problems. And Kevin, I think, is fairly even-handed on this. He thinks, yeah, that has actually produced some big wins in terms of what the Gates Foundation has achieved, for example. But he's also worried about the loss of politics, relationships, power, those other things that disappear if you go into a technocratic rabbit hole. And he thinks that's, for example, one of the stories behind the blind spot on inequality of many uh, modern philanthropists. So I think an interesting, thoughtful review of what sounds like a very interesting and thoughtful book. Um, number four of the week, I went back to my Latin American roots. You know, Every now and then I write about Latin America on the blog um, because I love Latin America and it's where I sort of first got involved in thinking about politics and international development and how change happens and it's still close to my heart. Uh, it doesn't always get lots of hits, I have to say. Latin America is a, a bit of a, a minority interest, certainly in, the, in, in Europe. But this one was a, a piece I noticed in The Economist on Mexico. So Mexico looks as, like, as though it might legalise cannabis. And The Economist, I thought, had a very good piece about whether that's a good thing and who for. So it's an interesting addition to my library of how change happens case studies, which I'm sort of constantly adding to. Um, but it also reminded me of conversations 30 years ago. 30 years ago, I wrote a book called Faces of Latin America, which had a chapter on the commodity trade uh, in Latin America. And I looked at cocaine as a commodity and say, uh, um, I just wondered if cocaine is ever legalized, will all the th millions of small farmers growing coca leaves suddenly be squeezed out by multinational plantations? And it seemed like just one of those kind of thought experiments, but it is actually happening now. Um, it's happening in it, it could happen in Mexico um, with Canadian and U.S. companies coming in, buying land or big Mexican private sector companies buying land. Standards, uh, quality standards and, and sort of production standards being imposed, which make it impossible for small farmers to uh, get access to export markets, you know, finance going to the people who've already got money rather than people who need it. All the things that you would expect when a commodity tra uh, kicks in will take place in Mexican cannabis and could lead to um, you know, some very bad results for, for Mexican farmers. So as usual, the conclusion is power, politics and inequality ensure that any reform, no matter how superficially sensible, for example, in Mexico, getting rid of the link between cannabis cultivation and, this, and the horrendous, um, horrendously violent drug gangs in Mexico. No matter how superficially sensible, it still has the potential to go badly wrong. And interestingly, I got a comment on, the, uh, on that post from someone in Colombia saying that's exactly what's happened in Colombia, that um, since Colombia went for some sort of partial legalization, a lot of uh, small farmers have been squeezed out of the business. Then the last post of the week was um, a podcast I didn't listen to. So, you know, I have to confess, I don't really listen to podcasts. I don't have a commute. I hate listening to things on my earphones when I'm running or swimming or doing anything, you know, um, in, the, in the way of leisure. So I just never get round to it. So there's loads of interesting podcasts. I even flick some of my own like this one on people. But I'm just not a person who listens to them. But there was a really interesting looking sounding one uh, went up um, this week. So I went and found the transcript and read the transcript, which feels like cheating, but it was really interesting. So it's a new series called Transforming Humanitarianism uh, and it's co-hosted by Heba Ali, who directs this great uh, uh, online um, uh, magazine called The New Humanitarian online news service and Jeremy Conendick who's, I'm not sure if that's correctly pronounced, who's a senior policy fellow at the Centre for Global Development 
in in Washington, which produces huge amounts of stuff I cover on the blog. It's just amazingly productive and very interesting. So their latest episode, the fifth one in the series, is called Money, Money, Money. Um, and they were looking at the way money and the way humanitarian relief, emergency relief, you know, conflict, disasters, earthquakes, famines, how the way that money is channeled distorts the way the humanitarian system operates. And in particular, they were talking about two things. One was um, why it's found, so, found it so hard, despite all the evidence, to move towards cash transfers as a standard operating model. And the second one, which was the one I picked up in the, on the, in the blog, are these promises that the humanitarian uh, sector is going to localise. It's going to push power and money down to local uh, NGOs, local organisations, because they are best at doing rapid response to the increasingly frequent um, disasters around the world. So um, I think it was Jeremy introduced this and said, we've been spending the last couple of years digging into the humanitarian business model. We talked to donors that represent about 60% of the funding in the system. We asked every donor about the grand bargain commitment on localization. And particularly we asked them, do you have the bandwidth to actually give more money directly to local and national NGOs? And every single donor said no. So you've got a situation where all the donors in a room at the uh, a big humanitarian summit a few years ago, 2016, I think, said localization is a good thing. And then every single one of those organizations says, but we can't do it. We can't give away money in small enough quantities. We can't do the due diligence. We're too worried about risk. We're too worried about money laundering or anti-terrorism legislation. A million reasons why localization has not happened. And probably in there is some good old fashioned racism about not trusting local organizations, whereas you can trust the white guys in charge of the big NGOs or the big um, UN agencies. So what you have right there is a recipe for a lot of trouble. And Jeremy's observation, I think it was a really interesting one, was if the donors don't have the bandwidth to do that, then that creates the need for an intermediary layer. So somewhere between the donors and the frontline responders, there have to be organisations big enough to take big chunks of money and responsive enough to the grassroots to localise, to localise that money in the right amounts, in the right, you know, to the right people at, at the right speed. And this was where Sema Kenel, who comes in, who works, uh, runs something called the NIA Network, um, came in and described what sounds like an absolutely brilliant attempt to construct this kind of intermediary organisation. So I'll just read out what, what Sema Kenel says uh, and leave it with you. So at the NIA Network, we've been looking precisely at alternative financing strategies. And what we propose is to convene and to incubate local civil society actors, local leaders and their networks at the local level. So this includes the private sector, Islamic funding, community philanthropy. There's a plethora of actors at the local level, at the national level, that are actually willing to engage. They want to be part of the solution. And we're just leaving them out of the picture in the standard humanitarian response. It would still be a pooling of funds, but it would be a pooling of funds at the country level. And donors, if they so wish, can actually contribute to what's being created and what's being convened at the national level. So you're saying to donors, OK, we'll create these pooled funds. And if you say, if you are genuine about localization, you stick some money into those pooled funds alongside all the local actors who are also putting money into the pooled funds. It sounds so obvious and brilliant. And the good thing is that the, um, the NIA network is actually doing it. So they've created 
local funding mechanisms in Somalia and Nepal, and they're going to do one in West Africa. And as Emma summarizes, it's basically decentralizing the way the money flows. Not a centralized system as we have now with its big players monopolizing those resources, but actually decentralizing it. So I do love a practical suggestion which people are actually putting into practice to deal with a massive dilemma, which is the lack of localization in the humanitarian system. And on that optimistic note, have a good weekend. Bye.